The last time I was the centre of attention for so many friends, family and colleagues, I think I was getting married. Uh, on that occasion, as on this, my hope was that I don't disappoint. So, what makes a belief believable? This question circulated through my work for the past 15 years or so. And over that time, it's gained a weight of significance that it didn't have when circumstances first brought it to my attention. Back then, I was only interested in why, on the publication of the first volume in the Radical Orthodoxy series, a collection of essays could provoke such enthusiasm from some and such antagonistic polemic from others. In a fairly quick succession of years, international conferences were held on radical orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, radical orthodoxy and the Reformed tradition, radical orthodoxy and Eastern orthodoxy, to name just a few. In the early days, I even had people emailing me about where they could find their local branches of radical orthodoxy and how much were the subscription charges. Still, the biannual conferences organised by those affiliated to Radical Orthodoxy at the University of Nottingham in particular, conferences that are held in various venues across Europe, draw international scholars, including Nobel and Pulitzer Prize laureates, and around 250 people from a variety of different disciplines. The next one is in Oxford at the end of June, and it's on the soul. And yes, that's a plug. As I said, it is the worldwide attention to radical orthodoxy that my interest in believing and making believable first was sparked. And the spark was then kindled by my reading of the work of the French sociologist and historian Michel de Sato. I eventually went on to edit the de Sato reader for Blackwell. What makes a belief believable is the focusing question for at least two of his major works, La Possession de Ludon in 1970, on the outbreak of demonic possessions at the Ursuline convent near Poitou, and his much acclaimed exploration of social semiotics, L'Invention du Quotidien in 1980. It's also a major theme of a collection of essays edited by Luce Giard following his death in 1986, La Faiblesse du Quoi. Subsequent to my work on De Soto, I then undertook a five-year project backed by the British Academy that was examining the new visibility of religion in contemporary secular democracies across Europe. This tracked and analysed the rise of international attentiveness to political theology, whether that be Jewish, Islamic, Hindu or Christian, the fortunes and controversies over sociological descriptions of the post-secular and the re-enchantment of the real, the debates on the demise of or significant modifications to secularization theory, and the new religious enthusiasm registered among young adults in the European Survey of Values. 
It commented also upon a turn in popular culture to the values of believing and the turn in analytical epistemology and continental philosophy to softer forms of knowing, weak ontologies and contextualizations of the verb to know. All these factors have brought the question of belief and the believable into sharper focus. Believe in better, Sky TV tells us. Make believe, Sony advertises. The commercial logo for Nintendo games is Believe Your Eyes. The British Olympic team's logo was Genuine Belief. In his encyclical, Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul II states, There are, in the life of a human being, many more truths that are simply believed than the truths which are acquired by way of personal verification. This means that the human being, the one who seeks truth, is also the one who lives by belief. And the importance of the final part of that conclusion is emphasised by being placed in italics. But why do we believe what we believe? Why is belief important at all? Fides et Ratio announces a theological anthropology. But it doesn't launch an advanced inquiry into what that living by belief might actually mean. The Christian scriptures view belief and its cognate faith as fundamental to the operation of salvation in Christ. I take a wide view of what theology is here in relation to an equally wide range of religions. But theologies are conscious articulations, and I take a wide view of what would count as an articulation, of believing. They are self-conscious about the act of believing necessary for participation, commitment, formation, and belonging. But amid a plethora of viewpoints, standpoints, ideologies, interpretations that are not always or even often coming to forums for dialogue and reconciliation, viewpoints, standpoints, ideologies, interpretations frequently spilling onto the streets in protests, bombings, and civilian slaughter, an inquiry into the nature of believing is vital. So for this reason then, answers to the question of what makes a belief believable seem highly pertinent in a complex cultural context that's national and international and in which we all live. But I will not be able to answer that question totally in one lecture. And I hope by the end of this lecture what you'll appreciate is why. All I want to do this evening is to sketch the terrain of what my research into answering that question covers. Dussato framed his own answer to the question historiographically, and he was trained as an historian. He charted the changes in the object of believing in the move from religious to political affiliation. His thesis is that secularization 
introduced new objects for belief, primarily the political party. And the effective structures of believing, like trust, loyalty, belonging, are adapted to these new objects. Many would say that this is a reductive and now even outmoded hypothesis, although there is a group of scientists, uh, cognitive scientists, in the Netherlands developing a displacement theory of belief. More recently, Charles Taylor, in his major work, A Secular Age, undertakes a similar, though a much more nuanced, historical examination of belief. He charts the move through what he calls the great disembedding of belief with the crumbling of Christendom, to what he calls the supernova of believing, where an explosion of commodified objects are available, including a variety of religious objects, in a competing market opened by secularism. My examination takes an entirely different course altogether. It doesn't accept, as both Dussatou and Taylor do, the self-fulfilling prophecies of the secularization thesis as a methodological or even historical premise. It roots believing elsewhere. Not in the religious, but in the everyday recognition that following Wittgenstein in notes that he was making just prior to his death, we do not investigate everything. Wittgenstein. And for that reason, we are forced to rest content with assumption. My life, and the, the italics are his, my life consists in my being content to accept many things. That Wittgensteinian assumption and acceptance might sound passive, but the insistence that my life consists hooks up with John Paul II's recognition that believing is profoundly woven into living itself. Belief is highly active and powerfully formative. So let's return to the question of what makes a belief believable. And this is where we begin to see just how much is bitten off in what seems apparently like quite a simple question. It seems to me we have to approach answering the question by drawing out at least three subsets of questions that need distinct examination because they're integral to answering the overriding question addressed. The phrase, what makes a belief believable, can be broken down into three parts. A, what makes a belief? What is it? B, what makes a belief believable? And C, what makes the belief believable? And we're going to examine each of these subsets in the rest of this lecture. The first set of questions unfolds from what makes a belief? What's involved in the nature of believing? What constitutes it as a mental act? Is it a mental state before it's a mental act? How does belief relate to consciousness? 
Consciousness illuminates only a very small fraction of what the brain is processing in the body, as the body and the mind interact with what is given, with the environment within which the embodied mind is situated. Belief has a more inchoate and subtle character than thought to the extent that it orientates and disposes thought. And this, in part, is what makes it difficult to identify. The German and early Romantic tradition, with the likes of Schleimacher and Hegel, employed the term Anschauung to denote that which is primary to thought. This is often translated in English as intuition, but the word describes a perception, shower, to look, adding the prefix an, that has the sense of near to, approximate to, inchoate. So what is named is not quite a perception, hasn't arrived yet at the attentiveness of a perception. Now, of course, beliefs can become cognitions, as the very ability to affirm, I believe, demonstrates. But if belief impacts perception, cognition, judgment, and evaluation, even precipitating action prior to or apart from these cognitive activities, then it is not simply cognitive. Similarly, although experimental and neuropsychologists have demonstrated a close connection between belief and emotion, belief and well-being, belief and unhappiness, such that we can find ourselves disposed towards certain states of mind, certain moods, and even act upon these states and moods without fully understanding why we have acted, belief is not an emotion. Nevertheless, belief is mindful deeply mindful. I will define belief as a disposition, and it's rooted in certain neural and somatic processes with effects both cognitive and emotional, both intellectual and corporeal. Now, I don't want to establish any Cartesian dualisms here. Beliefs do not float around as part of the mental functioning of a ghost in a machine. Nor, on the other hand, are they simply part of a biological program run by zombies. In fact, believing queers any dualist possibilities between mind and body, as most thinking does, according to contemporary neuroscientists. But how does belief then relate to other dispositions, like desire, hope, and intention that orientate or bias cognitions? How does it manifest itself as an aspect of being human? I advocate that we need to explore this first set of questions through examining what archaeologists and anthropologists can tell us about the origin of belief. Why? Because our capacity to believe is directly related to what evolutionary biologists and archaeologists call the encephalization process, the development of the brain. There were, in the prehistory of various homos, 
two major and several minor spurts in brain growth. And the brain growth in its phylogenetic development does not lose its earlier character and capabilities. It integrates what it has attained in the past into new levels of adaptions that will then inform its future. The primordiality of belief as a disposition goes all the way down. Some neuroanatomists, like Antonio Damasio, believe the basic intentional dispositions to which belief is attached lie in the very oldest parts of the brain, the tractus solitarius, the parabrachial nucleus in the brainstem, the thalamus, the insular cortex, and the anterior singular development of the brainstem. In this encephalization development, archaeologists have traced the early signs that indicate the processes and operations in which belief is necessary. But this, if this primitive and primordial believing leads to specific forms of prehistoric ritual, symbolism, and religion, these specific forms and their historical development are not the focus of my interest or my examination at this point. In answering this first set of questions, the focus of my interest and examination lies in demonstrating the universal nature of believing itself. Believing is at least an anthropological condition. And we are still today living out the psychosomatic impacts of our continuing evolution. As I said, massive amounts of our brain processing that enable much of our everyday behavior and our subjective experience never reach or are even associated with consciousness. And many of these behaviors, as the biological anthropologist Terence Deakin reminds us, involves belief, desire, and purpose. And in their different ways, both Durkheim and Freud recognize this. Now, I'm not constructing a merely materialist understanding of belief in associating belief with the evolution of the brain. There are certain properties of belief, like thought itself, which cannot be reduced to the electrochemical processing through neural networks. Beliefs like thoughts are invisible, for example. But invisible does not mean that they cannot have profound effects upon that which is visible, like our behaviors, our social relations, our cultures, our civilizations. Some have called these properties of belief intentional with an E, emphasizing that they are inner and not directly available for empirical investigation. They are intentional, dispositional, and teleonomic. That is, they're organized towards something. They're target-driven. We believe in. We believe that. The first verbal mode is intransitive, the second is transitive. But both verbal modes articulate movement towards a direct or an indirect 
object. They both project movement towards a future completion or target. In many languages, certainly Indo-European languages, this teleonomic property of belief, like other dispositional and not fully conscious orientations, such as desire, trust, hope, is given expression in optative and subjunctive moods. Nevertheless, while the properties of beliefs may be described as intentional, to tackle this first set of questions on the nature of belief will lead to an inquiry into what broadly might be termed the biology and neuropsychology of believing. What is involved physically and mentally in coming to believe and disbelieve? So an archaeology of belief from that current work by archaeologists and anthropologists with respect to genetics, the making of the human mind, the appearance of intentional acts, the development of language and symbolic actions, all that rests upon the physiological and psychological architecture of believing. Language is key here. And there's evidence of communicative symbolic behavior from around two million years ago with the emergence of Homo erectus. Language is both a shared means of communication and a mode of symbolic storing, which enables knowledge to be disseminated, passed on, and learnt. This should enable us to recognize what I call the structure of believing, a structure that we can map out with the help of analytical philosophers of consciousness, investing, investigating human behaviors like testimony, trust, empathy. With the language, the disposition of believing is associated with mental imaging, intention, perception, judgment, representation, knowledge, senses of the self and others as agents, and relations of trust or distrust with respect to agency. As such, it is not only an integral part of numerous forms of symbolic action, but it is also an integral part of the production and dissemination of ideology. It is only once we understand this structure that we can then tackle a second set of questions about what then makes belief believable. To engage with this second subset of questions, we need to recognize how the structure of believing is modified in different cultures and histories. Two examples. It's been recently argued by archeologists and anthropologists that the difference between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens with respect to the tool manufacture and technological advances that made Homo sapiens triumph over their human cousins lay not in their brain size. Neanderthal brains are actually bigger. Nor in genetic evolution, nor in the ability to communicate. The difference between what is called the Mysterian tool use of middle Paleolithic Neanderthals 
and the Aragnacian tool use by upper Paleolithic Homo sapiens, migrating through the Fertile Crescent from around 55,000 years ago, was not the result of anatomical, genetic, or intellectual variance. The difference was cultural. The cultural difference can further biological adaptation, and so biological evolution. It was the cultural isolation of the Neanderthals from these technological developments and their subsequent incredulity about their value that led to the differences between these two forms of what archaeologists call anatomically modern humans. It was not then that Neanderthals were thick country bumpkins compared to city-savvy Homo sapiens. Homo sapiens believed in other possibilities that informed the making of their tools and themselves as shapers of their environment. In the changing structure of belief, their older cousins were just left behind. They couldn't adapt. I'll give you another example, which is perhaps more clear. Michel Dessoteau analyzes a cultural shift that changes the way knowledge and its acquisition was understood. This affected what could and could not be believed. In his examination of the outbreak of demonic possessions in that 17th century town of Loudon, he exposes a cusp in the changing structure of believing. Loudon became a theatre in which old assumptions about spirituality, body, soul, the satanic and the divine, assumptions held by the local people and various doctors of the church, were being displaced by more recent attention by medical practitioners to symptoms, to their somatic etiology and prognosis. The status of perception and the definition of the natural were changing in ways that challenged the credibility of the old beliefs. Put crudely, the physician takes over the role of expert from the theologian, as the witness of lay knowledge takes up where clerical knowledge leaves off. The structures of believing are bound to historical transformation and cultural context. So to pursue the answer to my question further, I need to sketch a genealogy of believing. Charting the changing status, even of that word belief, and the changing structures within which belief operates or is allowed to operate. This genealogy will foreground the politics of credulity and the complex relations between believing, making believable, and making people believe. It will also point to a shift in modernity with respect to the hierarchical distinction between knowledge and belief, where belief became a weak form of opinion or even superstition that knowledge sought to extinguish. In modernity, knowledge hardens in the hunt for transparent certainty. Dessoteau's study of the conflict of interpretations that arose from those events of demonic possession 
in Ludon <clears throat> shows how modernity invested great value in the immediate apprehension of a perceived reality as true knowledge. But cultural shifts in the relation between belief and knowledge are increasingly evident in our contemporary cultures that celebrate and promulgate so-called virtual realities. Our current and profound engagement with a variety of, cult of virtual realities demonstrates a deeper commitment to symbolic activity. So there is evidence that the status according, according to believing has changed, at least in the West. And it's changed in line with attention by historians, philosophers and sociologists of science that evidence is not the foundation of truth. Evidence can be contested. Evidence is manufactured in laboratories, for example. Evidence has always to be interpreted. The facts of a case have to be assembled, and someone or a collection of someones have to make that assembly, and for some reason. The levels of intention and purpose behind the assembling indicate biases and prejudgments through which what is perceived is perceived as something. It is never simply perceived as such. Knowledge, then, cannot be disassociated from human interests. Even in the heart of the modern project for the German philosopher Immanuel Kant, this was foundational. We have no apprehension of things in themselves, things as they are. This is Kant. All our knowledge comes from our senses and reveals not the external reality itself, but our sensory adaption, perhaps transformation of that reality. Our way of perceiving will forever be inextricably mingled with the thing perceived. Adaption is a telling word. It will receive considerable development from Darwin to contemporary evolutionary biologists. In the decision about what counts as a fact, there needs to be some appreciation of who is doing the counting and what is discounted and why. There is then a politics, explicit or implicit, involved in all believing. And even disbelief is a form of belief. Recent investigations into the psychology of atheism by an experimental psychologist at this university, who may in fact be here, point to the psychological parallels between atheists and religious believers. Now this second set of questions attempts to address what makes a belief believable. But it has now delivered us to the explicit politics of believing. So we encounter here our third and final subset of questions focusing on what makes a belief believable. At the level of making beliefs believable, we're thinking through the social production, dissemination, and interpolation of belief. That is, the ways in which social institutions, from the church to various organs of the state,
and para-organs of the state, like universities. The way these institutions embody, perpetuate, and socialize its members into various beliefs. And here I examine myth. Myth in the sense Mary Midgley gives it in her seminal book, The Myths That We Live By, and Roland Barthes much earlier in his mythologies. The production of myth, it's often silent because naturalized impact and its ability to manipulate. To return to the observations cited earlier by Wittgenstein and John Paul II, beliefs organize and orientate living. Beyond the conflict of interpretations of experience, as Michel de Sateau saw in the events at Ludon, there is a complex politics. He exposed, in that early 17th century situation, a cultural politics in which, in which one dominant understanding of the world, the spiritual, conflicted with at least three others, the medical and scientific, the philosophical pursuit of certainty and consciousness announced by Descartes, and a state politics concerned with sovereignty by the church and by the king. The possessions, as he understood them, were a symptom of a cultural cognitive dissonance. Enlightened knowledge, neutral, objective, clinical, pure, is the solution to that cognitive dissonance. Shifts in the believable have to occur to allow a high ground to be attained, to be won by someone by some party, at the cost of someone else, at the cost of another party or multiple parties, each contending for the same elevated position. Both cultural and state politics are related to social organization and the establishment of a hierarchy of functions within that organization that is, to the development of a social imaginary, a sense of the organized collective that limits cognitive dissonance. And religion has been viewed here as important to this evolution of functions. With the emphasis upon the making believable of beliefs, in this third subset of questions, we're concerned with power relations. But power comes in different forms. Physical power, to hunt, provide food, ensure a distribution of that food, and to reproduce. Intellectual power, to teach, to conceive new and more efficient ways of accomplishing daily tasks. The ability to make better tools, to communicate in persuasive ways, to problem solve. Economic power, to have the wealth or to own those items understood as socially valuable. Symbolic power, to be the son or the daughter of a leader, to belong to a caste elevated above others, to have access to limited resources such as magical and supernatural forces. And cultural power, access to knowledge and the tradition the possession of abilities that are not widely available to all, but are socially esteemed 
like the ability to heal, to paint, to play a musical instrument, to cook. Politics concerns not simply the ordered governance of such powers, but the inner jostling among these powers for their place in the hierarchy of that governance. The point here is that the new structures of believing which enable there to be a social imaginary, an organized collective sense, and the cultural competition for prestige are founded upon making what might be believed believable by any number of other people. To make any set of ideas about the world believable concerns clustering sets of reasons for, from the many possible reasons for that are available. Winning support for the cluster gathered and lobbying for the social and cultural resources accorded such support. The politicking demands strategic thinking, the mapping and grading of alliances and hostilities, the command of organs for disseminating influence, countering other influences, and forums for such dissemination and countering. It requires the selection and interpretation of available, available material in the battle to win hearts and minds. And all this, all this is the terrain of belief and making that belief believable. The tactics employed may require deception, the utilization of fear or bribery, and appeals to and solicitation of acknowledged social and cultural authorities. All that can be learned about the nature of believing, what makes a belief, and all that can be learned about what makes a belief believable are employed in the making of a belief believable. But as I have sought briefly, sketchily to show, belief reaches the levels of being human that are profound, rooted in evolutionary development, neurological substrates, somatic, cognitive, and affective conditions. So it's little wonder that the real struggles for survival, for health, for wealth, for well-being, the real struggles take place in the domain of belief. Believing concerns our hopes, dreams, and desires, past, present, and future. It concerns also our fears and suspicions. It is within the context of this struggle for our minds and hearts that we then have to examine the role of religion, ideology, utopia, and truth in the production of belief and the wars of ideas promulgated by different systems of belief. In the course, and quite rightly, uh, sorry, of course, and quite rightly, I think you'd be wanting to know by now why a Regis Professor of Divinity is spending so much of his time among intellectual disciplines as diverse as evolutionary biology, anthropology, cognitive and neuroscience, archaeology, philosophies of mind, and cultural theory. Well, in part, this interdisciplinarity, which has been a key feature of all my work, is what I want to encourage in theologians. Since at least the early 19th century, we've learned that any theology 
which I interpret as not just Christian theology. Any theology has to situate its inquiry within the histories of religions. And that's why it's important, and not just a fortunate coincidence for me, that the Faculty of Theology here changed its name at the beginning of this academic year to the Faculty of Theology and Religion. Theology has to recognize that it has very few tools for its own science. There cannot be a pure dogmatics as some 20th century theologians believed and persuaded others to believe and pursue. As Aquinas recognized in the opening quaestio of his Summa Theologiae, theological inquiry borrows the tools for its analysis from every other intellectual science. Complex questions like the one we've been examining require complex interdisciplinary methods. If Christian theology, to take one example, has to inquire into what is creation, what it is to be human, the ontological distinction between creator and creation, the process of sanctification, the nature of sin, the relation of time to eternity, history to salvation, and much more, it just cannot ignore the riches of the discoveries, debates, and explorations in the sciences exploring similar and cognate terrains. Furthermore, to attempt to answer the question of what makes a belief believable not only has profound ramifications for the cultural context in which we live now and an understanding of the human condition as such, it helps to lay the foundation for considering the nature and the operation of religious faith. The more we understand faith as a species of believing and believing as primordial, laden with intention, that in various analogical forms goes right down to the cellular and molecular, then in a time when virtual realities are proliferating, the mythopoetic is saturating popular cultural life, and some sociologists are employing terms like post-secular and re-enchantment, then maybe, maybe, seeking to answer the question of what makes a belief believable, will assist us in recognizing just what's at stake for people when they say that they believe in God. There's a final reason, and I conclude here, for why a theologian should be interested in the question of belief, beyond the concern to elucidate how and why faith seeks understanding. The earliest hominid and human expressions and representations of the primordial disposition to believe are all religious and associated with ritual practices that, are still, that we're still trying to piece together and understand. And I'm not thinking here of the Ice Age art that's currently on display at the British Museum that began to make its appearance in Europe and Eurasia around 40,000 years ago. The paintings and parital art of bisons, horses, oryx, woolly mammoth, deer, felines, in the caves of Altamira, Lascaux, and Chauvet, for example. I'm thinking here of burials of the dead, the cultic use of okra, and the domestication of fire. And we're not necessarily treating Homo sapiens here. In a cave in the Zagros Mountains in Kurdistan, 
a Neanderthal burial site has been discovered. And many other Neanderthal burial sites have been discovered since across Europe, going back, or at least some have said going back, to 400,000 years ago. In the Shanidar cave, the skeleton of an adult male was found, and he was between 30 and 45 years old. He was laid out in a fetal position. In the middle of the cave floor, in a niche of stones that looked like a natural crypt, according to a paper offered to the Smithsonian Institute by the main archaeologist of the cave, Selecki. The grave had been covered by stone blocks and was found also to contain other remains of a baby buried first and two females buried directly above the baby. Their remains were all immediately beneath the man. Now, he was evidently important, honoured. His importance may well be related to the fact that he was surrounded by flowers of different various varieties, or what remained, anyway, of the ancient pollens. The flowers were evidently grouped because the high densities of mixed pollens were out of character with pollen counts taken in the rest of the cave. Now, some or all of these plants could have been introduced into the cave by the wind, wild animals, or even the boots of the people working with the archaeologists. But still much about that burial remains unanswered. For example, all the flowers found were recognised as having medicinal properties, used in tonics, diuretics, stimulants, and a range of reliefs from toothache pulses and spasms. Okay, there are a number of ifs and buts here, and I don't want to make any theological claim on the basis of this burial. Rather, I want to point to an issue about the psychobiological origin of belief, in which information about the inner world of the body and the information about the world external to the body mutually inform each other. And its early representations in symbolic activity like burials. And I wish to raise a question. And it is a question. Though so much depends, as a poem by William Carlos Williams opens, on the answer to this question. Is the relation between the disposition to believe that arises in and through neural information processing the recognition in self-consciousness of a meaning transcending and external to oneself and religion, is that relation a highly probable, if not in some weaker sense, necessary relation? Now, strict evolutionary materialists like Dawkins and Dennett would say absolutely not. There's no teleology or purposefulness in the biological processing. And any sense of meaning is constructed, a sort of byproduct of the processing. The process itself, they conclude, is blind and accident-driven. But there's another way of construing the possibilities here. That we are made to become and to be creatures able to respond and adapt to a world that is meaningful. And in recognising its meaningfulness, and our fittingness to receive and respond to it 
then those telenomics of belief work and respond to the teleology of what is given and meaningfully given to us. As a scare tactic, critics of this highly probable relation between biology and mind and the representations of the meaningful will speak of panpsychism and animism. But while materialism reduces everything to the physiological, panpsychism reduces everything to the mind. And then we're just back with the choice between zombies and ghosts in machines. So I suggest that things are a whole lot more complex and reductions of that complexity in either of those two directions is not only unhelpful, but leads us down thought paths that will only end in all too familiar cul-de-sacs. Believing always has an agent, but its activity goes beyond any mastering grasp of agency by that agent. Thinking through the complexity in which believing mediates between the body, the world in which it's situated, subjective cognition, and symbolic representation opens a portal to the possibility of a highly probable relation between religion and belief. Rather, that is, than an arbitrary relation, the materialist view, or a fully determined relation, the panpsychist's view, in a word, believing points towards the possibility of intelligent design, but not one that rests upon an unnewest and unnuanced panpsychism. And on that possibility, I'll conclude.